Thank you all for joining us on this week's episode of the Takeaway Golf Podcast, where we showcase the people who make up the game, helping you discover your golf industry career. On this week's episode, we're joined by Dr. Allison Kurt, Doctor of Psychology, LPGA and PGA Master Professional. Listen now as Allison gives us her blueprints on the path to her success. I know that you majored in psychology and then you also did the PGM program while you were in college as well. Yeah, so I'm definitely academically focused and school um, is something that um, appeals to me because I love the learning process. And I actually finished my psychology degree by the time I was finished with my sophomore year. And my plan at that point, yeah, my plan at that point was to get a master's degree and then become an FBI profiler. I really wanted to work in criminology and be able to like hunt down serial killers and figure oh out why God. people did. That's so awesome. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Crazy. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Really inspired by Silence of the Lambs and, you know, one of the bats in my, my world. Um, and if that didn't pan out, then I wanted to be the next Annika Sorenstam and make lots of money and be on TV and be super rich and famous playing golf. Um, but we know that a very, very small percentage of us actually get the opportunity to play that great on tour. And I had two years left of eligibility and nothing to study. And so my mom encouraged me to look at professional golf management um, as a backup, as uh, having something in my world that I could at least keep in golf. And, and I would say that as much as I like fought the education part of that, like that's not what I'm interested in and I don't want to do business administration and you know, learn about agronomy and all that. It was probably one of the best decisions that um, occurred in my life because it really set the platform for if I couldn't compete on a professional level and make a, a decent living, then at least I'd have an educate or an opportunity to stay in golf. And that's exactly what happened. And um, as you all know, like if you don't have sponsors when you graduate to try to go to Q school and pay that four thousand dollars and you get one shot to do it plus travel, it's really hard to make a living. So as soon as I graduated college, I was fortunate to have the psychology background and to have my PGA membership where I could instantly walk into the workplace and start my career. Um, and that's, that's what happened. Wow, that's crazy. So how did you, how were you able to get your psychology degree done by sophomore year? What, did you go in with a bunch of credits already? Like how was uh, Yeah, so some of the high school credits and AP classes, um, basically I didn't have to take a lot of the fluff freshman courses. That, and everything, yeah. Exactly, right. Yeah. So I could immediately start working on my major when I got into college. Um, and I think most, most student athletes would hang around 12 or 13 hours in terms of credit units. And I was like, oh, that class looks interesting and that one looks interesting. And so I would usually carry like an 18 credit load per semester um, just because it was all interesting and fascinating to me. I know that um, psychology, like you were really interested in the whole investigating and, and whatnot, but did, did you ever like connect the dots between golf and psychology back in college as well? Were you ever thinking like, oh, maybe I can do both? never crossed my mind I never thought I would be a teaching pro I never thought I'd be in the golf industry like that did not register 
in my mind as well. Um, it wasn't until later that I was working at a private country club, a high-end private country club, where there was um, a type of social economic background that is unheard of. It's like the top 1% of the world um, for financial backgrounds for, with people I was working with. And the problems that they have when you have millions of dollars in the bank. Well, money, more problems. Just, exactly. <laughs> and I'm just trying to pay my rent, making, you know, $42,000 a year in yeah, Southern right. California. Yeah. Um, it was sort of like, I want to figure this out. I want to understand like why you're so unhappy mm. when from the outside looking in, it looks like you've got $42 million in the bank. Yeah. Right. So a couple years into um, teaching and being an assistant golf professional, I felt like I, I just want to understand people better. So I took night classes at Pepperdine and earned my or my graduate degree in psychology. And I felt like that helped me a little bit understand sort of what everyone's perspective could be and maybe what baggage they carried and then how that impacted performance. So it was actually more profound with my graduate degree to integrate that into golf than it was with my bachelor's degree, which certainly served as a catapult to then consider a doctorate degree, which I then went down that path. Mm -hmm. So during that time, was that when you were like kind of thinking, okay, I want to go back into school and, and connect the dots with golf and psychology? Yeah, that was the beginning of my golf career in terms of being in the industry and working in golf clubs. So I was at a couple facilities out here in the desert for about a year before I moved to LA and then started at Golf Tech when it was first opening up in 2006 oh, okay. and then very quickly ended up at Sherwood Country Club. And so I spent a large portion of my early years at Sherwood Country Club. And it was then that, you know, I was trying to get the routine of my life and being an adult and being in my mid twenties, how am I gonna pay for things? How am I going to, um, what's life like? Am I just gonna show up, go to work and then go home? Or is there something bigger that needs to be built? And I think those questions started to rise up in my mind in my late 20s and say, okay, with what I'm doing right now, there's probably like a little bit of a plateau. And if I wanna keep expanding my life and growing my life, I need to do something. And it's gonna require some education. I see. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say, that's so nice to have like, that that curiosity so young because you know some people are just trying to figure it out probably at your age what you sophomore year of college that's like you're 19 right mm -hmm. 19 20 and like to to think further and say what more to it can i do like why why you know just to have all those um all those questions in your head but like good questions you know to figure it out why at such a young age is like so curiosity yeah it's so I find it very like interesting and, and applaudable too. Cause I wish, cause sometimes at 19, I'm like, Oh, like, you know, what am, what am I going to eat tomorrow or something like that? <laughs> Just the, not like I never like dug deeper into that, but that's so cool that you had that mentality. Yeah. I think part of it too is um, why that happens for certain people and not for others. It's certainly like our cultural influences. It's our family influences. And my family was pretty, pretty clear on um, as soon as college is over, like you're on your own in terms of finances and making big girl decisions and things like that. Of course, they wanted to create a launch pad that like you're on your own, but if you ever fell, then we would be here to help you out. But it's not right. like a lot of individuals now where they might be living with their parents up until the age of 30. It was like, you're 18, you're, you're out, you're on your own. Mm -hmm. And so if I didn't think about what life was going to be like, I think I would have been, um, 
kind of in this rat race or in this place of maybe working lower paying jobs and just living paycheck to paycheck to figure out what I'm going to eat tomorrow instead mm -hmm. of, hey, how am I going to buy a condo? How am I going to buy a house? How am I going to move to right. a new place? Mm -hmm. Nice. That's awesome. Um, let's so see. what was it like starting your own business with Kurt Performance Therapy? Well, so I actually started Allison Kurt Golf before I started Kurt Performance Therapy. And after I finished my master's degree, um, I was getting to this point at Sherwood where I felt a little bit stagnated and I wanted to grow and didn't feel like the facility was going to give me the opportunity to grow. And so it was probably one of the best things that happened to me that it was time for us to part ways. And so I left that facility and then decided I was going to build my own corporation and be an independent teacher. And then that's an opportunity for me to add in the other avenues of mental coaching, um, swing and physical performance and maybe even fitness performance in it and so that occurred in 2014 and so I learned a tremendous amount about how to build a corporation in California and what does it cost and what are some of my benefits and how to do my own accounting and things like that so it was really um, interesting to see that the degree that I hated so much in school like that business admin that I didn't want to do all of that stuff was being mm -hmm. used and applied and integrated when I'm actually in the real world. Yeah. Um, I found that kind of interesting. And so when I created Allison Kurt Golf, it allowed me to um, be able to find a facility where I could run my business. And after I finished my graduate degree, it was only about a year before I decided I need to move up a level and get a doctorate because the types of people that I want to work with, the types of clients that I hope to be able to influence probably would see a Dr. Kurt maybe differently from an aesthetic point of view than just Allison Kurt MA. And so when I got my doctorate degree, that's when I was able to open up and become a licensed physician, a licensed psychotherapist and be able to open up Kurt Performance Therapy, which is my second corporation where I can funnel all my mental coaching and um, clinical practice through. So basically I like teach during the day and I run my business for golf swing performance. And then in the evening I run my personal psychotherapy um, business. Uh, now it's actually a lot of virtual. So I'm actually getting an opportunity to work with yeah. people around the, around the world rather than just in my office in Woodland Hills. Wow, it's nonstop for you. That's so cool. I know. Like, what do you say? Oh, go ahead. How did you even start? Like, we're, I can't even think about it. Like, how do you even go about starting this whole business? It, it just seems like, like such a, like just thinking about it, it just seems like such a, a long journey. But like, how are you able to just like think in the, in the now and then as well as in the future? Well, I think part of it is motivation that you have to pay your bills. So yeah. at that point I had a mortgage and <laughs> need to figure out there needs to be income coming in in order to um, not go bankrupt. So part of, part of that is asking people who have done things that I viewed as being honorable or things that they're doing that I'm interested in. And I would just ask them questions. How did you do it? Um, what's your business structure look like? I was a part of the proponent group, which had elite instructors and they do consulting and um, asked a lot of questions for them. How can I get started? And so really it just comes down to like doing research and no one's going to do it for me. So being at home and researching what kind of corporation should I open in California? How many people do I need to teach per week in order to pay my mortgage? 
what sort of contract do I need to set up with a facility to make sure that they're not taking more money than, than I'd like them to take. All of that is from asking questions, asking people who have done it before me, and then doing my own research. Um, and so I think that that um, has certainly taught me a lot about business. And then, of course, I'm going into my seventh year now of owning my own business that it really... Um, I've learned my lessons along the way about, okay, I'm going to make different decisions and better decisions based on the history that I've had. And really for, for everybody, we don't want to only have successes. We want to have a fair amount of failures as well. And there's a wonderful book by Brene Brown called Rising Strong, and it talks all about how we fall, um, how we fall forward, and then how we rise up after those failures. And from my biggest failures in life, in hindsight, I can look back and say those were my biggest leaps in successes. Mm -hmm. So those are the biggest learning points for me um, throughout my life. And so, you know, for anyone out there who's thinking about like, I think I wanna do this, or I have this idea and I wanna monetize it in some way, start asking questions for two people who have done it before you and start to get some ideas that you can cultivate, you know, your own framework and your own ideas. Totally, I agree with that 100%. Yeah. I feel like, I learn more by asking people who mm -hmm. already know, like they have the, they have the wisdom, they have the knowledge to like give you, I feel like you learn so much by just talking to somebody that, mm -hmm. you know, has the job that you want or has, has done something that you want to achieve. So. Right. Mm -hmm. Great. In your business with Kurt Performance Therapy, cause you said how you, um, in your day to day, you would work on the golf swing during the day and then, you know, meet virtually with um, other patients for clinical, mm -hmm. um, um, sorry, appointments. Would, would you say that there's more um, family and marriage therapy that you've been dealing with? Or is it like, is there more of a balance between the two? Like, is there more so golf that you're, um, you're attesting to, or is it more so of a clinical Help so that's yeah. one of the nice things about having your own business is that you get to choose who you want to work with and how you want your business to look. So um, to become a licensed psychotherapist in the state of California, you need to have 3,000 hours in order to sit for your licensing exam. And a portion of that 3,000 hours is client contact, and a portion of that is education and supervision and all sorts of different things. So if you want to move through your hours to sit for your exam, you'll see anybody and everybody. Right. So in my training, I worked with severe mental health, I worked with inpatient, outpatient, marriage and family therapy, couples, children, individuals, very few athletes because they were not coming to the types of centers that I was working at where I needed the quantity to be able to get through. So once I had enough hours to sit for my licensing exam and then became licensed, now I have the opportunity to determine who I want to work with. Um, so earlier in my earlier in my career, a lot of the individuals who I was working with came over into my private practice, but then I was able to start to market to more athletes. So I would say that majority of my practice now is pure athletes, and maybe there's one or two clinical um, clients still kind of hanging around in my, pra in my practice. And then from those, there's a fair amount that are golfers, and I think it's how you want to brand yourself. And so as I started to, you know, we always start broad, and then we start to narrow in the more education we get and the more experience we get. So I started very broad working with everybody, and now I'm starting to funnel into athletes mm -hmm. and, um, and working with golfers specifically on the traumas that they've experienced in their life and how athletic traumas hinder future performances. 
and then have positioned myself to be an expert in a type of treatment that allows an individual to heal from that trauma much more quickly so that they don't have performance uh, limitations moving forward. Mm, so to kind of circle around and go back to your, your question, I would say at this point, there's 90% of my population that I work with are athletes. And from that 90%, I would say 50% are golfers. Oh, nice. That's crazy. You know, I never really thought about the, like, the outside factors or, like, experiences or trauma in relation to golf, like, the mental game of golf. I always think of it as, like, I guess I don't really think much about my mental game, but, like, I, I think, like, one, one hole at a time or, like, you know, just being patient and stuff like being that. Being present, yeah. Yeah, but I never really think of, like, other outside factors uh, now that you say that. Well, every athlete, um, well, actually every human being has at least experienced one trauma in their life. And there's two different types of traumas. We have small T traumas, which are things like um, maybe getting a bad grade in school or missing a putt to win NCAA championship or getting a 12 not, on a hole. I was going to say, that's not small. Like, that's kind of like, that's kind of, oh my God. <laughs> well, when we talk about small T trauma, it could be like divorce, bankruptcy, getting fired from a job. Large T trauma would be things like 9 11 plane right. crashes, being violently assaulted, things like that. So um, research tells us that at least everybody at some point has had a trauma. Um, and it, research actually tells us that more than not, we've had more traumas in our life than most people think that we've had. So if we just funnel down and look at the population of athletes to begin with, every athlete that I know has at least had some memory of some failed performance. And for them to bring up that memory and be able to vividly recall the experiences around it, how they felt, what it looked like, what were some of the things that they said to themselves, um, tells us that that memory was so overwhelming in the moment in that athletic performance that um, it's possible that their brain did not properly process that event and could serve as a trigger in future performances. So, for example, we've heard of stories of baseball players like pitchers not being able to throw the ball to the catcher anymore after some something might have happened or chipping yips, putting yips, driver yips, mm -hmm. um, experiences where, if you remember a few years ago at the Masters, Jordan Spieth hit like three yep. balls in the water, <laughs> big number. But if yeah. you look at his performance the year after, like the same thing happened on that hole. Right. So that's an example of a trauma that occurred, a recent trauma, and then when he got into that environment again, he was triggered and sadly his body responded in a similar way. So as athletes and as all of you on this podcast have experienced, you probably think about your own um, traumas that you've experienced on the golf course or in other avenues, like they stick with you and they can hurt and they can be from seven years of age or they could have been from last week. Um, and they do, unprocessed traumas do create performance uh, limitations and performance blocks for people. Right. Um, would you be able to help diagnose us? Say, for example, <laughs> you can charge us after, it's fine. <laughs> but say, for example, something like Jordan Sweet going through that, you know, the yips or the, that hole on, at, mass, at the Masters, like what would you, if you were to see him, what, from your expertise, what would you suggest, recommend to him? Well, certainly that, in, that experience is similar to PTSD. Mm -hmm. So um, depending on small T trauma or large T trauma, we can have PTSD-like symptoms, 
even though we may not fit the full criteria for truly having PTSD, we may not be having nightmares that wake us up or um, anxiety or panic attacks. We might just be really uncomfortable and really disturbed by the event and then have it bother us as it runs through our mind. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say that when individuals have those types of traumas that don't fit the criteria for PTSD, um, there's certainly going to be elements of anxiety and depression and PTSD-like symptoms that individuals will have to fight and battle um, and hopefully be able to, to meet with a clinician to work those things out. Now, one of the things that I do in my practice is I use a technique called EMDR, which stands for eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. And it's a technique that was created in 1989 and the World Health Organization uses it um, exclusively for, with, along with cognitive behavioral therapy to help veterans overcome PTSD symptoms. And it's a process that allows the brain to be able to um, process and heal from, tra from past traumas very quickly by moving the eyes back and forth. Because what happens when a trauma occurs is it becomes so overwhelming in our brain that our brain can't store it into long-term memory. So it essentially becomes stuck in our system. And anytime we're in a like or similar situation, that stuck memory becomes triggered and then it activates all of our um, symptoms of like being nervous or having muscle tension or being worried. So when we go to bed at night, um, our eyes move back and forth during REM sleep, and it allows for our brain to process and consolidate the day's information. We call that learning. So if you touched a hot match earlier today, your brain will store that information and say, hey, don't touch fire in the future because it hurts you. But when something is so overwhelming and so traumatic, the brain has difficulty storing the components of the stuck memory, so it just sort of like hangs out, if you will. And... When you move the eyes back and forth in a waking state, in a conscious state, it allows the right and left brain to talk and be able to move the trauma and unstuck it, if you will, so that an individual can process with someone that they trust and a clinician that they feel safe with about the incident so that the brain can digest it and move it back into long-term memory. So it's not a way to erase memories by any means, but some of the individuals that I worked with, when they recall the memory, it really just ends up being like a picture and this thing that happened in their life rather than recalling a memory and having this body sensation of memory of what happened and then these negative thoughts that follow it as well. So EMDR is one of the techniques that I would use for someone dealing with that. The other technique that I would use is something that's interesting called brain spotting. And where you position your eyes allows you access into some of these traumas. So you might um, you actually have all experienced this at some point. You might be thinking about something, maybe something happened, a conflict with a friend, or maybe you're fantasizing about how you're going to grow your business. And you might notice that your eyes are locked on a particular position. Maybe they're like low and to the right or up and to the left as you're thinking about something. That's mm -hmm. giving your brain access to the information. So another way to help individuals like unstuck and uh, process through trauma is by helping them find the brain spot where their eyes need to be positioned in order to allow them access to that memory so that they can begin process and healing through mindful um, attentiveness. Wow, interesting. Wow. That's so crazy. I'm just like so mind blown. Oh my yeah. gosh, I'm just like thinking right now. <laughs> like, like, I'm, I'm just like awesome. thinking about like, where do I put my eyes now? Eyes now. Access like, this information. <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh. That's that is so cool. 
Yeah, I want to go back awesome. to school now. My God, <laughs> that was so cool. So <laughs> do you like? Wow. What would you say you like to do more? Do you like to do like the whole mental aspect or more of the teaching aspects? I would say it's a great combination of both. So you may have all experienced burnout at some point, whether it was playing too much golf or feeling burned out at a job. And I think having this second job, if you will, sort of counteracts the burnout. So when I'm feeling, yeah, when I'm feeling like, oh, I need a little break from students, helping them with their slices. And if I hear one more person say, I want to be consistent, I might just slap them because it's not possible. Consistency is not possible. Um, The game of misses. It is, it is. Like, we're not consistent as human beings. So how do you expect yeah. yourself to be consistent hitting a golf ball? Amen. Um, right. <laughs> preaching to the choir, I know. Yes. Um, then it's nice for me to be able to, to switch into this other phase of my brain where I'm able to be a little bit more academic and kind of teaching and sort of a helping softer side and be able to ask questions to people to make them think differently to help them find solutions to their own problems. Totally. I think it's great that you have both, um, you're skilled at both areas so that you, mm-hmm. you're like overall, like well, well-rounded coach because like yeah. you have access to both the mental and the, the physical parts of golf. And I'm sure like they both kind of help intertwine and in ways to help players excel in their games. <laughs> Definitely. It was taught super early on in my career, like to make yourself unique and to find a niche. So whether that was in club fitting or fitness or sports psych, find something that you're really interested in so that you can specialize and separate yourself from everybody else. Because when someone's Googling golf instructor, like your name's just going to be thrown in with a bunch of every other people's names. So how do you, what do you offer that's different than what the market is looking for? Um, Just set yourself aside. So being a woman definitely helps. So that already puts me in a different category, Mm -hmm. but then to offer something that a lot of people don't offer um, certainly makes the brand and the business a bit more unique. Totally. I agree. So when people say Alison Kurt, well, at least when I think Alison Kurt, I think of like everything that you've accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, like everybody knows, like Al- Dr. Kurt, you know, it's like it's more <laughs> than just like an instructor. It's like she knows everything. So, uh, quick, <laughs> quick, quick rundown because you have your, you don't have a PhD, you have a side D. Is that what it is? What's called? Right. So in psychology, um, a PhD is a doctor of philosophy, and it's oftentimes research-based where PhDs would be more academically, like wanting to conduct experiments and maybe work in a university where they want to write journal articles or be a teacher. But some are also PhDs, like in counseling psychology. Um, A PsyD, doctor of psychology, is a lot more applicable and Um, person-centric. So a lot of the training in a PsyD is not academically focused or research focused, but it's actually more in the helping profession. So like if someone is across from you, what are the counseling techniques? What are the um, modalities that you would use to help somebody? Right. Interesting. Would you um, go through a day of what your a typical day pre-COVID, I guess, in a normal normal (laughs) day of life of uh, Dr. Allison Kurt? Like Tell us what you love that you do, like whether it be the traveling, the teaching and all that. 
Yeah, it's, um, there's some days where it's kind of the same and then there's always um, some neat stuff that come up. But I would say like on a typical day, I'm up by 4.45 a.m. and then I'm at the gym by 5.30 to 6.15. So I get my workout done in the morning. And then lessons for me start at eight o'clock and usually teach um, till about three o'clock, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Then I come home and then start working maybe one or two nights a week with clients um, at, at one point in an office. So I'd have to change shower and then get to the office by five. But now I can just change shower and, and log in to clients yeah. um, currently. Um, and then I would say that I would try to take Sundays and Mondays off, but Mondays oftentimes are a lot of the local PGA section tournaments. Mm -hmm. So that would be my opportunity to compete. Um, in addition, I serve in some governance positions with the PGA and the LPGA. So oftentimes that takes me either out of town to board meetings or a really fun part of my job, which I love is I'm PGA adjunct faculty. So I get the opportunity to go into PGM universities just like I attended. And I'm able to teach the teaching and coaching curriculum to those students as they go through their different levels to become a PGA member. So that brings me to some neat parts of the country to see some different universities and to help young individuals build their teaching career um, and have some good solid fundamentals early on. Um, lastly, I would say that throw in a national tournament every now and then. So then there's the preparation to, to travel and practice rounds and compete and hope you make a paycheck so that you don't feel like I could have made more money staying home teaching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then there's always that. So I would say like pre-COVID, there was a really mix between here's what I do during the day. Um, Sundays and Mondays as I try to take off is like catching up on life. And I have a puppy that I have oh. to exercise and love. So that's what always fun. I have, I have an English Labrador and she's 14 months so she's amazing um, but you know there's family responsibilities and I was able to buy a house a couple years ago so then you know sometimes it's like enjoyable to cut the grass and you know yeah. trim trees and things like that be like so, normal <laughs> yeah right. normal adult <laughs> exactly right that's how so cool. are you able to to juggle all this because yeah. I mean like being on the board and, and doing all all these things there's just that's just a, lot, a handful of things to um to do all the time like how are you able to organize yourself and make sure that you're able to attend to all these things yeah i get asked that question a lot and i think that um when people say they're busy i ask them if you were to track everything that you did all day long like write it down on a piece of paper you might find that you're not as busy as you think because there's a lot of wasted time doing menial tasks and I think for me, I'm really good and I hate multitasking. I don't believe in multitasking because it's not being mindful. You're yeah. being, you know, in, basically inattentive to three different things instead of being attentive to one okay. singular thing. But I'm really good at scheduling and being able to um, plan and here's what I do. And I think a lot of times if you were to track like how much we're on social media or how much we're flipping through the internet or just, you know, menial things, it adds up throughout the day, how much Netflix you watch, um, how much YouTube you might watch, time can pass by really quickly. Um, so for me, when, when it's things that I enjoy doing, then I have a pretty easy time doing the things that I enjoy. And I love school, I love teaching, I love making money. 
and I love winning golf trophies. So those are the things that I'm going to put my energy and focus into. Yeah. She just loves being a winner, guys. Yeah. There you go. I love winning. I love it. I love winning. I love it. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah. That is a great tagline. I love that. Yes, I love winning. Absolutely. <laughs> so how do I do it? Like I just schedule. And, yeah. you know, sometimes it's like, um, you know, Ronnie, like with you, it was tough to find the right time, but I kept at it. it was persistent. Mm-hmm. Hey, does this time work? I'll get back to you on mm-hmm. Sunday. I followed up on Sunday. Mm-hmm. I always make notes in my calendar. My calendar's filled. I'm always like writing stuff down on notepads. Like I'm just pretty organized like that. So um, I think that like when you really want to do something, you're going to do it. Yeah. So it's like when people really want to lose weight, they will lose weight. When they really want to quit smoking, they will quit smoking. That's if they're true. not so into it, then you're going to struggle. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like like that, obviously, that has contributed to your success, right? Like the mindset of that. The organization, yeah. Yeah, the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, what if there's somebody who's like not as organized? Like what? Trying to. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, cause it's kind of hard to flip the switch, you know, like right away all of a sudden, right? To have a lifestyle change like that. Yeah, but like, they, they want to, they want it. So. Yeah, I, I would say look at some of the people that really inspire you that are successful in, in life, whether it's big corporations or maybe in a smaller circle of family member, and then see how they live their life. And I find it is near impossible to find a successful, a highly successful person who has poor organizational skills. Like it just doesn't happen. So if there's a desire and there's a want, and you just don't have the education, then that's where you can ask someone for help on like, how can I get organized? Can you show me some of the things that you do? How do you use an agenda? How do you um, commit once it's in your calendar and not, um, not, not follow through? How do you right. do those things? That can just all be skill building, but organization is a skill. And if you really have that intensity and that desire, like I want to grab my goals, I want to do this, I want to win, then you're going to do it. I agree. I agree. How do you juggle being, well, I mean, you're, you're, I guess you're already answering, but I'm just like to play, to play well as you, as busy as you are, but to play well at the same time. So, cause you know, a lot of people struggle with that. Like where's the time yeah. for practice? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't always play well and you, you women know what it's like to be in slumps and Mm -hmm. um, when you play really well, everyone pays attention to you. And then when you play really poorly for two or three months, no one hears of you. Um, (laughs) So, right. Um, So I probably hit balls at least at minimum five days a week. Um, most days I hit balls six days a week. Now I don't get a chance to play all that much, but I'm at least hitting a golf ball and in teaching, like you're constantly talking about concepts. So you're running the circuitry in your brain about a golf swing. Um, a lot of times it's things that I'm teaching a student that I actually need to work on for me. So the more I teach it, the more I understand it and get better at it myself. But it's one of those things like, okay, I teach eight to four. So here's a good example. Um, I'm in the section championship right now on Friday. I taught eight to three. I practiced, um, I got to work early from seven to eight and I practiced from seven to eight. And then I practiced from three to four 30. So after I, I taught lessons all day. Mm-hmm. Um, Saturday, I taught from eight to four. So I got there early, seven to eight, I practiced, and then I practiced from four to five. 
came out to the desert, did my practice round on Sunday. That counts as practice. And then here I am competing. Um, I do have a little practice facility at my house where I can hit putts on a putting green and I have a net and I have my flight scope. So I've got things to, to check in, but it's kind of like compare, if you compare that to someone else, maybe they're taking the extra hour of sleep and sleeping in. I'm going to take the extra hour and go get my practice in because yeah. I don't want to suck when I get here. That's or true. at least I hope not. <laughs> yeah, you got to think about the, the future. <laughs> yeah. right. It's kind of hard. Sorry, I was just going to say, like, it's kind of hard to not fall into that that habit of, you know, putting in so many hours and like, oh, I'm so tired. Like, I could go to sleep, but I could go practice right now. And then, and then I guess it's just whatever you put in will sh- end up showing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, when I was at college at Florida State, football was huge and we had a great mm-hmm. football program and Bobby, Bobby Bowden was the head coach and he always had um, very motivational things to say. And I remember he always used to say, you're only going to get out of it what you put into it. Yep. And so if I expect to play really well and I didn't do the work to put anything into it, then there's only one person to blame. Yep. Yourself. Yeah. So, man. I'm like, it's like coming back to me because I see so many events too. Because I, I, I still play too every so once in a while in tournaments. But I'm just like, man, you make me making me like rethink now my uh, my, my <laughs> process. Get organized, you know. Get organized. I'm like, no, when I when when I want to go to sleep, I'm like, think of Allison. All she wants to do is win. I'm like, I want to win too. I want to win too. Well, you know, I just had a conversation with one of my friends who was a longtime tour player and then switched to, we played against each other in college, and then she switched to being a tour caddy, and now she's gone through that phase and she's getting into the teaching phase. So as she's kind of gone from player to caddy to teacher, um, she's asking advice on on what life is going to look like. And then from the flip side, as I'm getting ready to play in my seventh LPGA major, um, teacher and player, never caddied. Um, I'm asking her like, Hey, like, how can I prepare? Because I haven't had the tour experience. I've had it five, six times, but I haven't had it 10 years, 32 times a year. And she was giving me a little bit of insight on what her life as a tour player looked like. And it was every day, at least two hours in the gym. So at least two hours of working out, whether it was fixing limitations or stretching or doing a workout, cardio, strength building. Mm-hmm. And then it was at minimum six hours of practice. That might've been an 18 hole round or it might've been all skill building for those six hours. That's an eight hour day, only working on her golf. Yeah. Me, I get like maybe an hour a day because I'm right. spending eight to nine teaching. So I kind of have to take that perspective and say, all right, the people that we see on TV, like if you watch the ANA this week, you look at Brooke Henderson and Miriam mm-hmm. Lee and, um, oh gosh, who else was in the playoff? And Nellie Corda. Like Nellie, yeah, yeah. Nelly. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, they eat, sleep and breathe golf in order to be able to get that opportunity to get into that playoff. Right. So when you have your club, player complaining to you about not breaking 90 (laughs) and they took a 60 minute lesson and put zero practice in (laughs) yeah I know I always yeah whenever I see (laughs) some of my club members I'm like it's a process it's not going to be overnight so right right and how much time are you really putting into it exactly yeah so what was it like competing in LPGA for the past have you, you haven't competed in your seventh one 
are you right so that's going to be in two weeks two or three Ooh. weeks um yeah my first one was in 2012 thank you thank you it's going to be different like no spectators no yeah. family you can't have i just got an email today that you can't have you can have two support staff which include a coach an interpreter or um, physical therapist, but you can't have like family or spouse or brothers or whatever. So it's gonna look different um, and COVID testing and all that, but what's it like? It is entirely anxiety provoking um, and exciting at the same time. It is so neat to be on the other side of the ropes and to actually like see what these women do to get to the level that they're at, how they play. And then to kind of compare yourself and say, how close am I? Am I anywhere like that? Um, and then like the, the amenities of it, the interviews with the PGA and the LPGA and being on Golf Channel, um, there's courtesy cars, nice meals, like all these cool opportunities yeah. that come along with it. It's um, the most anxiety provoking and the most fun thing <laughs> that I think that can happen in golf. Nice. Is that the shop right that you're playing or which event is that? Um, it's the KPMG PGA Women's Championship. That's what it is. Okay. Yeah. I'm just looking it up right now. And Aeronimic? Aeronimic? Aeronimic. I was like, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Where's that at? That is in Philadelphia. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, the weather's so okay my, over there. Yeah. My first plane trip since February. So that'll be interesting. Ooh. Wow. Yeah. But I heard all the airports right now nowadays are a little They're bit later. Pretty. So. They should be a little yeah. more on the emptier Should side. be okay. Yeah. yeah. That's, what's the criteria that you have to meet? Um, so the, the LPGA has the tour division, and then they have the professional division, which is club pros and coaches and teachers. Mm -hmm. And so every year there's a national championship for that group. And there's typically eight spots uh, that are given to qualify into KPMG. And then on the PGA, there's a PGA women's stroke play that occurs every year, a national PGA women's stroke play. And there's one additional spot. So in total, there's nine women in the field who are non-tour players that have qualified to be there. That's awesome. This is all across the country, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yay. Thank oh, you. I feel so honored talking to you. My gosh. <laughs> That's so cool. Thanks. Awesome. Yeah. Thank we'll, you so much. Uh, we'll definitely yeah, be watching. We'll be cheering you on. Thanks. 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 Love it. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. So uh, you've accomplished so many things, obviously. What else are you looking to do now? I mean, I know COVID is uh, a hindrance, but... Uh, what else is on the horizon? Yeah, I think that um, there are different speaking engagements that I hope to be asked to present at just because it's an opportunity to share on a bigger stage than I've already presented. So would love to be able to speak at the National PGA Teaching and Coaching Conference that happens every two years. Um, would love to kind of expand that speaking opportunity globally. Um, I recently did a PGA of Australia presentation virtually, so that was really fun, but I'd like to branch that business um, more because I really like that uh, factor of my life where I can share information about golf and psychology and how to help teachers teach better and how to help them as players as well. Um, publication 
is on my radar. So having a book published. Yes, how to, you should. Yeah. <laughs> I think you should. It's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard if you don't want to do the self-publishing. And, and the self-publishing is kind of like my last resort. So um, I have a lit agent. I have some stuff already written. And then we're just trying to like find a publisher for it. Um, I did publish a research article, which was huge, but now I'm trying to get that into a bigger journal um, because that I think is really important that uh, the research is validated and peer reviewed in order to kind of brand yourself as someone who's done, you know, some really hardy work in that area. So publication would be huge and then to expand, um, expand the teaching business or the, the speaking business, I would say. But then I think also when I look at some of the categories like uh, golf, golf top 100 has been a, a big award or honor that has been on my radar and I haven't quite broken into that yet. And so um, hopefully that'll happen for me one day. So there's some things in the radar. Yeah. And then of course playing yeah. like the courses coming up for KPMG over the next five years are just like amazing, like congressional and just oh, nice. and like things like that. I would love to be able to be able to qualify and yeah. compete in those. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I think you're, you're not, you're not straying away from that. So you're, you're on the right track. <laughs> so yeah, nice. at it. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Thank you. So I guess as we wrap it up, what's the last thing I guess we can ask is what advice do you have for someone wanting to accomplish as much as you have or wanting to, I, I want to say sell your shoes. But you know, yeah, besides, yeah. And yeah, wanting to win. I, yeah, to be a winner in life. Um, I would say don't compare. Don't compare like what I have done to what you have done because it's just like don't compare your golf game to somebody else's. You don't know someone's story. You don't know what their life is like. But having a roadmap and a blueprint to follow is really, um, I think, motivational, but also super important to like mapping out how you want your life to look like. So it doesn't have to be the path that I have taken. In fact, no one's going to be able to take the path that I've taken because it's my path. Mm -hmm. So when you create your own path and you create the life that you want to live, what does that look like? Can you draw a picture of it? What are the steps that you need to take in order for that to become a reality? Is it having a big house? Is it having a fancy car? Is it having a family? Is it being successful and fulfilled so that you don't feel like you're going to work, that you're actually going to something fun? Whatever it might be, just create a blueprint and create a roadmap for what you're going to do and then follow it. Just do it and follow it. Yeah, I, love it. I, I agree. I will, I, will, I will not compare myself then. <laughs> well, I, think that, I think that's great that you said I love it. that. So, which is like, so funny because it's just like growing up I it's everyone's different like you said like everyone walks different life paths of life but it's like that's how I was growing up my parents always comparative because I'm a younger sibling so my parents always comparing me out it's like my older cousin or just like my older brother or whatever it is so it's kind of hard not to like consider that obviously because they're my parents but then you know it is very important to create your own path Right. Yeah. When I see junior parents um, comparing their child to someone else, well, mm -hmm. he's hitting it 10 yards farther and um, he's scoring lower. And it's like, do you think that make your kid feel great? Like, did it make you feel good when your parents compared you to other people Gosh, in your, no. in your family? No. So it's not helpful, but right. you can use that as like baseline information to say, where are you in your development? 
Um, what are some things that you could do better in order to reach your personal and unique goals? And what sort of support and resources do you need in order to help you achieve that? Rather than like, you know, comparing yourself like we do on social media, that person's prettier, that person's thinner, yeah. that person hits the golf ball farther, they have better golf equipment than me. Like, doesn't make anyone feel good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Yeah, I, right. I, it's really cool that you said that. Yeah. Um, Allison, thank you so much. Thank you. I know we, we know that you're super busy, obviously, but we yes. really appreciate you taking the time out to do this with us. And you know what? I learned so much uh, in this last hour with you. Same. So thank oh you gosh. so much for spreading your knowledge and your wisdom, but not, um, we really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this definitely not only helps us, but definitely will help someone else. So we thank you so much for your time. And good luck tomorrow. It's a cut, right? There's, There's a cut, right? was Dr. Allison Kirk. If you want to dig deeper into the mental performance of golf, visit hurtperformancetherapy.com. Thanks for listening. You can follow along with us now on our new Apple podcast and YouTube channel. Go ahead and subscribe now. Also, leave us any feedback by sending an email to info at the takeawaygolf.com. Catch you guys again next week.